This is exactly right. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Erin Welsh. And I'm Erin Almond Updike, and we're the hosts of This Podcast Will Kill You on Exactly Right. We're back with our seventh season, which is bigger and better than ever. Because guess what? We're now a weekly show. This season, we're tackling everything from long COVID to norovirus, from the supplement industry to IVF, and so, so much more. New episodes drop every single Tuesday. Follow This Podcast Will Kill You wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. And then all of a sudden, 14-year-old Jennifer Chappell looks out the window and she sees a couple of things streaking across the sky. And then they hear explosions. And then the plane shudders violently. The people who are outside looking through the window realize they're fighter planes and they're bombing the airport. People are screaming and shouting, get out, get out, get out. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show. I've interviewed some people in person and some from my home studio over Zoom, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Today I'm talking with author Stephen Davis. He wrote a book called Flight 149, A Hostage Crisis, A Special Secret Forces Unit, and The Origins of the Gulf War. This is a harrowing story about hundreds of passengers who are held for up to five months in Kuwait as they sit right in the middle of a war. When you're saying this is a life story, what does it mean? The themes are government lying and manipulation, a era of history, 1990, which is little understood by people, but which has had a profound effect on the lives of everyone in the world. It's about people behaving badly and well under duress, the largest hostage taking in modern history, and a tale of terrible suffering, which has lasted 30 years, where the people suffering have not had the public recognition they deserve. And just the psychological terrorism felt by people who are hostages, which I think we cannot understate in this story. Yes, this is a large group of people from all over the world, Americans, British, about 15 other nationalities, who end up as hostages at the mercy of Saddam Hussein and suffer terrible things. 
even after 30 years of reporting this story, I continue to learn startling new information. Well, let's start with the beginning. It is August 1st, 1990. They are going from London to Kuala Lumpur. Is that right? Yes, it's 385 passengers and crew. And they are on a British Airways flight 149, which is sitting at Heathrow. The flight is going to Madras and to Kuala Lumpur in Malaysia, which is final destination. But crucially, there is a refueling stop planned for Kuwait. Let's go back because I want some more details here. First of all, for people who don't know anything about Malaysia, give me a profile of Kuala Lumpur and why people would be drawn there. Is it business? Is it a beach? Yes, it's very interesting. Most people on 149 who were going to the final destination of Malaysia were going on holiday. Malaysia is known for its very fine beaches, and they were looking forward to some sun and sand. There were a few others who were going there to meet family. And on some of the passengers, they were transferring at Kuala Lumpur to Australia and New Zealand. So it was a place to link with a flight for Australasia. So demographically, the largest group on board were French and Indian who were going to get off at Madras, the Indians to be scattered all over the place. The French were going to the French Indian colony, Pondicherry. There were a large number of Americans on board who were coming from London, obviously, to Malaysia. Some of them were actually stopping at Kuwait. It was their destination because they had jobs there. In Kuwait, a lot of expats are employed in banking and oil industries, etc. This is August 1990, so before the era of mobile phones, when flying was still more of a big thing than it is now. Basically, a set of fairly middle-class people who were set out from Heathrow with Great optimism and hopes. So tell me about this time period. You mentioned 1990. Okay. We had, crucially, a dispute between Iraq and Kuwait, which, for those of you who don't know your geography, lies just to the south of Iraq. The dispute was over an oil field, which was half in Iraq and half in Kuwait. It straddled the border. And Saddam Hussein had accused the Kuwaitis of stealing their oil, his oil, stealing part of his revenue. And in speech after speech, he threatened to retaliate by invading. He had fought a brutal war against Iran, but to some extent, he was a friend of the West. He had invited Western politicians like Donald Rumsfeld to visit him in Baghdad. And the United States saw him as a bulwark against Iran, which was considered to be their greater enemy. In this context, you have a dictator making threats and you have the West not really paying too much attention. And at some stage, there's a crucial meeting. The US ambassador in Iraq, April Glasby, meets Saddam. Now, this meeting is disputed what was said and what the outcome was. But Saddam seems to have come away with the impression that the Americans weren't bothered about his dispute with Kuwait. And he interpreted that as a green light, that they weren't going to mind or they weren't going to get in the way Mm. if he sent his men into Kuwait. So that was one of the crucial moments of the saga. He'd been making these tremendous warlike speeches And in early August 1990, satellite footage spotted a huge military force from Iraq, tanks with the Republican Guard, who were gathered on the border of Kuwait. 
And that's the day that British Airways Flight 149 was due to take off from London and fly to Kuwait. So this is pivotal in history. This was a direct flight to Malaysia or there was supposed to be a stop in Kuwait. Is that right? Many of the passengers who got on board British Airways Flight 149 assumed the first stop was going to be Madras, India, and the second stop was going to be Malaysia. And they were somewhat surprised by the fact that there was going to be a stop in Kuwait, which was strictly a refueling stop. The plane flies seven hours and then it lands in Kuwait and it gets aviation fuel on board. Many of the passengers who gathered that day to get on the plane and who had heard on the news that morning that Iraqi troops were gathered on the border of Kuwait were rather shocked to discover that their first destination was in fact Kuwait Airport. I'm assuming shock is an understatement. That must have been terrifying to realize that you're in a place that seems to be the epicenter for what could be a huge war, and then you land. One of the most striking things in the book and in an interview I did was the BA-149 chief purser, Clive Earthy, he's on the road and he's driving to Heathrow Airport that morning and he hears a BBC report and it says there are more than 100,000 troops on the border with Kuwait. And Clive thinks, well, obviously, we're not going to stop there. And the British Airways crew, by the way, when they got to the airport to assemble, asked for a security briefing. And they were expecting the security briefing to come back from BA saying, yes, it's too dangerous. We're not going to fly. And Clive said to his crew, yeah, don't worry, guys, because I'm pretty sure the message is going to be, we're going to skip Kuwait and we'll go to an alternative destination, maybe Bahrain. And they were really shocked and disturbed when the message came back from British Airways, no, the flight is going ahead as planned. Tell me the Americanized version of what a purser is. Clive Earthy was the chief purser of BA-149. That meant he was the outside the cockpit. He was the senior man on the plane. He was in charge of organizing all the stewards and stewardesses. He was in charge of the boarding arrangements. It's a very senior position. So they land in Kuwait, and then they're told that they're going to refuel there, and then they're going to take off for Madras or Kuala Lumpur or somewhere else. Is that right? Yes. In Kuwait, the refueling was next stop, Madras, India, and then finally on to Kuala Lumpur. What's the next thing that happens? So as the plane is sitting on the tarmac at Heathrow Airport, it's delayed. And the delay is really crucial in this story and very controversial. One version is that something was wrong with the air conditioning unit. The captain of the plane decides to hold the plane on the ground to fix the air conditioning unit. Now, some people believe the whole air conditioning unit thing was a diversion, bogus, and it was merely designed to keep the plane there for an extra two hours after its departure time. While they are sat on the ground and all the passengers are on board, at the very last minute, the doors open again and a group of young men get on board, about nine or 10 young men, and they walk right through the plane to the back. And a lot of passengers looked at them. Some passengers thought, oh, are they oil workers? And other passengers looked at them and thought, they look really fit kind of determined young men. There's something of a presence about them. Uh-uh. A couple of the people on the plane, a Frenchman who actually was a military officer, looked at them and thought, hmm, they're soldiers. What are they doing here? So that must have caused some quiet panic. Nobody is expressing any of this just yet. I'm assuming everybody's compliant. Yeah, depending on where you were sitting on the plane, you were either very disturbed or not. Somebody shrugged it off. 
The strange thing about this saga, given how badly British Airways have behaved throughout and how determinedly they've covered up the story since, was a lot of people flew on that flight on the basis that British Airways was this airline that could be trusted. Hmm. You know, so many of the crew said to me, well, we were worried, but we knew British Airways would never land us in trouble. This worldwide airline, this symbol of the United Kingdom, we weren't going to be in trouble. BA would look after us. And so even though some people were disturbed to see the men on board, they just thought, okay, it's all going to be good. When does it seem like it's not going to be good? So British Airways Flight 149 lands in Kuwait. Some of the passengers get off to stretch their legs. Some other passengers stay on board the airline while it's being refueled. Of course, that would never happen now, but in 1990, you could sit on board the plane while it was taking on board fuel. Hmm. So they're sitting there, other passengers are walking around the terminal, and they noticed a very, very odd thing about the terminal. It was deserted. Mm. And they looked up at the arrivals board and realized that the only plane that had landed was their plane. So they're really starting to worry about it at this point. And then all of a sudden, 14-year-old Jennifer Chapel looks out the window and she sees a couple of things streaking across the sky. And then they hear explosions. And then the plane shudders violently. The people who are outside looking through the window realize they're fighter planes and they're bombing the airport. So on the plane, the plane is shaking. It's being refueled with 50,000 gallons worth of aviation fuel and the airfield's being bombed. People are screaming and shouting, get out, get out, get out. They rush out of the plane and onto the gangway and into the terminal. In the chaos, there's a lot of stuff left behind, which turns out to be crucial later. An American passenger called Jan Bat, who had a lot of medical issues, left his medicine on board. Another passenger left her diabetic medicine on the plane, and she was lucky because one of the British Airways crew raced back and grabbed it. Meanwhile, in the terminal, they noticed a couple of other odd things as the airfield was being bombed, one of which was there were military Kuwaiti guards there, but they looked at their holsters And the holsters were empty. They'd taken their weapons out Hmm. and been disposed of or left behind. So here they are with this amazing drama, bombing. A lot of them thought, we're in trouble here. A 17-year-old German who I interviewed said, this is not the holiday I thought I was going to get. And shortly afterwards, of course, things get worse when Iraqi troops turn up at the airport and round all these people up and take them to a hotel. Give me context, Stephen, for hostage situations in general. So there's the Iranian embassy. That has happened already in London, right? What do people who are sitting on this plane, the average Australian, American, whoever, what is their context for people who have been taking hostage up until 1990? Yeah, that's a very good point. Some of them thought about hostage taking. Some of them thought about the Americans taken hostage in Iran as the Ayatollah took over. And then they thought, what a terrible ordeal those people suffered and how long it took to get them out. And as it happens, and rather disturbingly, the hostages from 149 ended up having a worse time, a far worse time than any of these previous hostage takings. And early on, it became very apparent how bad things were going to be. They were put on buses and they were taken to the airport hotel. 
and the passengers got off and one of the stewardesses from 149 got back onto the bus to check if anybody had left belongings on board. Bear in mind that very few of them had had the chance to grab even their check-in bags in the rush to get off. She got on the bus, she heard somebody behind her, she turned around and there was a Iraqi soldier with an AK-47 and he was grinning at her. He came forward to grab her. She screamed, but nobody heard. And a steward who had got off the plane, came back on, saw what was happening, tried to intervene, was punched to the ground. He got out and screamed at Iraqi soldiers nearby, come and help her. Can't you see what's happening? One of them laughed and said, he's just having some fun. And she was taken, of course, and greatly distressed off the bus. And that's the moment people knew they were really in serious trouble. And that particular incident had a grim aftermath. So Clive Earthy, when he found out about it, found the senior Iraqi officer and said, one of your men has committed a rape. And the officer said, okay, and he gave up some orders. And eventually they brought two men into the hotel and the stewardess was there and Clive was there. And he says to the stewardess, was it one of them? And the stewardess says, yes, him. And the officer gets out his gun Mm. and tries to hand it to the stewardess and says, do you want to shoot him? (sighs) can imagine how disturbed she is already. And then he turns to Clive and says, do you want to shoot him? And Clive says, no, 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 I don't want to shoot him. I want you to deal with him. And sometime afterwards, the guy was taken away. And shortly afterwards, people in the hotel heard a shot and it was him being executed. This is in their first few hours in Kuwait. And as you can see, this was a sign that this was going to be a very grim ordeal indeed. It's important to note that when the plane landed and the door opened, there was a Kuwaiti royal on board, a VIP, and he was traveling in first class. When the plane landed in Kuwait and the door opened, Clive was surprised to be greeted by a uniformed British military officer. And the military officer said, you're late. Well, why are you late? And Clive said, oh, we were delayed on the ground. So bear in mind that they were two hours late. Hmm. And the military officer said, I want the blah, blah, blah. And Clive can't quite remember what he said, but Clive assumed that he wanted the VIP. No. He said, I want that other group, the group at the back of the plane. So they were summoned and came through and got off and there were men waiting to meet them. And then this mysterious group disappeared and were never seen by any of the passengers again. And alone among the people on 149 were never taken hostage. So what is the conclusion of that, that group in the back? Well, the conclusion is they were a secret team who were sent into Kuwait. And exactly what they were there for and what they were doing becomes clear later on. And that's the secret that both the Americans and the British government have spent 30 years trying to suppress. So let's go back. How do you even contain a group of people like that? I guess with enough AK-47s, it's not a problem. Yeah, bear in mind there were about 100,000 Iraqi troops invaded Kuwait, so there were a lot. Uh, There were a mixture, by the way, highly disciplined, well-trained Republican Guard and conscripts who barely had proper uniforms and often were hungry themselves and so stole the hostages' food. Initially, the Iraqis were shocked to have this plane delivered into their hands 
They hadn't expected it. So they didn't know what to do with them. And this is a really interesting example of news manipulation. And as journalists know, the first version of a story is often the one that's believed. So I remember being on the news desk of The Independent on Sunday in London, which I'd helped to launch in August 1990. I was quite interested in the plane. And the word put out by the Foreign Office was, don't worry, yes, it's a mistake, but all these people are okay. They're in luxury hotels and they're in the sunshine and they're probably drinking cocktails by the pool. And it's just like an extended little holiday for them. In a way, that was partially true because they were taken to luxury hotels initially. Of course, there had been a rape and it was already clear they were in a bad way. So Saddam Hussein realized these hostages were going to be a great bargaining chip against the West. So he scattered them at 70 locations all over Iraq and Kuwait. Makes him impossible to rescue then, is that right? Yes, and also places where he thought the Allies might bomb. So they became known as human shields. That's where the word human shields comes from. So they were scattered at all these locations. And ironically enough, this is when uh, Saddam Hussein actually had weapons of mass destruction programs, unlike 2003. In 1990, he actually had them. And some people ended up at nuclear weapons and chemical weapons facilities. So BA-149 had been delivered into the hands of Saddam Hussein and he'd been gifted all these hostages. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Tell me, is this something that comes at the end where we find out exactly how this happened? If British Airways is surprised and the Iraqis are surprised, how do you reconcile what happened? Okay, so first off, the role of British Airways is really significant in this. After years of investigating this story, I found out that the captain of Flight 149, Richard Mm Bunyate, was an asset for MI6 British intelligence. And I found out, and when we launched the book in August this year, we had a press conference, which turned out to be very controversial and very well covered. For the whole of the time, British Airways have said the following. Before Flight 149 took off, our man in Kuwait took advice from the British Embassy. And the British Embassy said, no, there won't be an invasion and it's safe to fly. And so we flew. That's the story that they've stuck to for 30 years. This is British Airways, right? British Airways. Okay. That turns out to be absolutely untrue. A very brave man called uh, Tony Pace, who had a title at the embassy, but whose actual title was the MI6 British Intelligence Station Chief in Kuwait, came forward to help me with the book and appeared at the press conference. And Pace was the man that British Airways had taken advice from about whether it was safe to fly. Terrible advice. Ah, but this is the thing. No, he says that was not his advice at all. He says what he told them was, 
If you have a plane going through tomorrow morning, that is at exactly the time that 149 would go through, it'll be caught in the invasion. So he told them the exact opposite of the phrase, it's safe to fly. And that was confirmed in a statement that the British Foreign Secretary last month or the month before was forced to make, and a statement from the ambassador. So here is an airline, British Airways, who said for 30 years, these people got stuck because we were told by the embassy it was safe to fly, and that turns out not to be true at all. And it turns out that their pilot was an MI6 asset. So my conclusion from that, Lord King, the chairman of British Airways at the time, was a very close friend of Mrs. Thatcher, the prime minister. And it is clear to me that British Airways allowed the plane to land in Kuwait as a favor to the British government to get this secret group on the ground. So to clarify, you've confirmed that MI6 assets were on the plane, but no one has ever figured out what they were actually used for. Won't they be scrutinized if there's a commercial airliner landing in Kuwait? It's a terrible idea. It's one of the worst ideas anybody's ever had. I'm afraid it is not uncommon for public transport to be used as a cover for secret missions. And in America, in the UK, obviously, is this all over the world? Oh, yes, absolutely. One of my other major investigations as a journalist is the sinking of the ferry Estonia in the Baltic, which is one of the worst shipping disasters in Europe since the Titanic. And it turns out the Estonia was being used as a cover for a smuggling operation to get stuff out of Russia, secret stuff, and get it to Sweden. So unfortunately, this is all too common. So this group in the back were MI6, is that right? The ones that they were getting out? So this is an interesting organization. It's designed for the government to literally be able to deny it. So John Major, the prime minister, was able to say in a statement, no serving British military personnel were on the plane. There's this secret group. They used to be called the Increment. These are soldiers and spies, full-time soldiers and spies, special forces and intelligence signals corps. But in a sleight of hand, they leave the military and get paid privately for a period of time Hmm. as part of the secret group called the Increment. And that provides deniability. The CIA, by the way, have exactly the same sort of operation. So that enables a politician to stand up and say, no serving British military personnel. Of course, they are serving. But for the period of time they've gone on this secret mission, they've effectively become private contractors. But I'm presuming that the British government was not aware that the civilians would be taken hostage also. Did they just assume that this would be something that would be safe? So the secret team who I've interviewed two of, when they were briefed, they said when the Iraqis invade, the Kuwaiti military will probably hold out for, say, three to five days. That was what the mission planning was based on. So if you imagine when 149 landed, if the Kuwaiti military was still fighting and holding out, the plane would have taken off and nobody would have been any the wiser. They had bigger worries. Yes. Unfortunately, the Kuwaiti military collapsed like a pack of cards. Mm -hmm. And rather than three to five days, Iraqi troops and special forces reached the airport in three hours. And that is because the Kuwaiti royal family took off for Saudi Arabia at the first sign of trouble Mm. in a long convoy of Mercedes and Range Rovers, having left no instructions for the defense of their country. To be fair, 
they did not think when they planned the mission that the 149 people would be trapped on the ground. But here's an important thing. They have also said for years that they did not know the invasion had started until after the plane had landed. Mrs. Thatcher gave a personal statement to the House of Commons. Every single thing she said was a lie. Tell me about the people and how they have now been disseminated to 70 different places. You said some are at luxury hotels. No, they were at luxury hotels for three days because the Iraqis didn't know what to do with them. And that allowed the British Foreign Office to spin the story that everything was going to be okay. Then they were scattered all over Kuwait and Iraq and the horror stories began. In a calculation made by the British in a report that they then kept secret, three and a half thousand documented war crimes against the human shields, three and a half thousand 2,000 against UK citizens and 1,500 against the citizens of other countries. We are talking sexual assaults. We are talking near starvation conditions, torture, mock executions. We are talking, for example, at one camp, people are woken up in the middle of the night and they are driven out into the desert. They're made to get out at gunpoint. They're given shovels. They're made to dig a trench. They're made to crouch in front of the trench while the soldiers line up behind them. And of course, at that stage, they've been praying. They think they're going to die. There's a click and the soldiers fall about laughing. It was just straight psychological torture. That's the mock execution? Yes. We're talking about, as I said, so desperately hungry. Captives bribed a guard to get them food. And the guard was a conscript. Even the Iraqi conscripts weren't being fed properly. So he comes back with the leg of a giraffe from the local zoo and they don't want to, but they eat it because they're desperate. They're literally collapsing with hunger. At one stage, they took a look at a cat and were thinking, shall we kill the cat and eat it? And it turns out they didn't have time because one of the Iraqis killed the cat and ate it. We're talking about constant fear. You know, fear that you'll be bombed by your own sides. At one camp, Clive Irvy noticed they were digging a deep trench And he said to the guard, what are you digging? And the guard said, oh, that's just a latrine, Mr. Clive. And Clive said, no, we've already got a latrine. Come on, tell me what it's for. And the guard says, oh, it's to burn the rubbish, bury the rubbish. And Clive says, look, I know that you do that elsewhere. Tell me what it's for. And eventually the guy says, look, we have instructions that the moment the invasion starts, we're to shoot you and bury you in that trench. So for months on end, these people lived in the most horrendous conditions, very bad psychological and physical conditions. And for many of them, by the way, they never, ever recovered. Remind me of Clive's position, because I know we've talked about him a lot. So Clive was the chief purser of BA-149, and he was famous throughout the fleet as being the calmest, most unflappable man But, you know, when I've spoken to Clive over the years, like so many of these people, even decades later, there'll be a moment where they remember something terrible and they'll tear up or they'll start to shake. These hostages suffered lifelong conditions. And, you know, that's what makes me angry. This is a story that everybody should know about, the terrible things that happened to these people and why it happened. But The British and American governments for a long time quite successfully have succeeded in keeping it a secret. 
Tell me how long this is. So they are spread out. They are being tortured by various ways. And, you know, these are people that sound like are from all different socioeconomic backgrounds. Are they ranked? Are any certain types of people treated better than other types of people? No, it was entirely random. On rare occasions, you were lucky enough to end up with a fairly humane captor. One of my strong interviews, a man called Barry Manners, ended up in a dam in northern Iraq, and his captor, an engineer, Mr. Roll, defied Saddam's orders and actually treated his hostages kindly, invited them to his house, gave them cups of tea, uh, got them extra food. Hmm. The nice aspect of that story, by the way, is after Barry got out and came back, he went back to Iraq several years later, tracked down Mr. Roll, his captor, and the two became fast friends. Uh, Mr. Roll and his family now live in Sydney, Australia, and Barry and him have been friends for all of these years. So this was the rare occasion where you were well-treated. For the people who ended up in camps run by the Ba'athists, who were Saddam's hardliners, it was just completely grim from beginning to end. Do people die? Do we lose any of these 385 passengers and crewmen? Strangely enough, none of the passengers and crew died then. Many died early. All three people in the cockpit, by the way, later died in their 50s. Um, I think the stress was too much. But they were held for up to five months. (sighs) Unbelievable. He released people randomly. At one stage, he released the women and children, but some of the wives decided to stay with their husbands rather than get out. So a lot of very difficult decisions were made. But yes, five months, five really grim months of hell. And then nobody could really guess half the time, of course, what was in Saddam's mind. He was a mercurial figure. The Allies were desperately worried. Of course, they were gathering for the great push into Kuwait, kick the Iraqis out, Desert Storm was coming. And they were desperately worried about the fate of all the hostages. And then in December, Saddam suddenly announced they could all go home. He'd given away one of his trump cards. Nobody really knows why, but let's face it, he was not a normal person. He was not. And the fact that they came home, by the way, before the war started is also crucial because they were immediately forgotten about. I know even as a journalist then, and I'd been following the story, I was on the news desk of The Independent on Sunday in London. You know, when a war comes... We're all geared up for covering the war. That's all that was in the headlines. So sadly, most of the media forgot about these people. It was only after the war finished that I started thinking again, what was that about 149? I'd had a call from a contact very early on saying, you should look into this. What people are saying about this is not true. And so that's when I started investigating and I'm still working on aspects of it. 31 years later, it's taken half my life. How do you get someone from MI6 to talk to you about something so horrific that the British government was responsible for, and the American government, obviously? You spend a long time cultivating their trust. Most people will not talk. In the act of talking, you should bear in mind that he breached the Official Secrets Act and faced a prison sentence if they pursued it. So it was a very courageous act, but he also had to ensure that he could trust me to report his story properly. And finally, after 15 months, right up to the last minute, I thought the British government might step in to stop him. But very courageously, he appeared alongside me at this press conference and confirmed a lot of the story. And so I I owe him a great deal of thanks for that. And how many 
people, how many passengers and crew did you end up speaking with for your book? 385 total on board. Yeah, about half. Oh my and God. Uh, I'd still like to speak to the other half. Some of the passengers I've interviewed seven or eight times. And even up to the publication of the book, I was getting new information. And then since the book came out, yet more people have approached me who I'd never heard of before with other amazing stories, which are now going to be in hopefully the paperback edition and the podcast. So it's been a bit of an epic journey. Yeah. And I've had to bear in mind the whole time that these are victims of trauma. Many of them have PTSD. And so you have to be careful because you are asking them to talk about things which will trigger the most appalling memories. This is incredible and naive of me to ask this, but is there not a class action lawsuit that can be filed somewhere against someone so that these people get some kind of justice? Yeah, that's a very good question. The legal treatment subsequently of the passengers vary depending on their nationality. In Texas, a very good lawyer called Bill Newman, who I've interviewed on several occasions, mounted a class action lawsuit against British Airways. And at one stage, I've read the affidavits, the British Airways explanations for what happened was so ridiculous that clearly they decided that no Texas jury should ever hear this because it would look very bad for them. So they settled that in secret. Hmm. So Bill's clients got secret settlement. Another group of US passengers sued Saddam Hussein. Oh, okay. But it fell over, Mm. over jurisdictional and other issues. But in Britain, passengers sued. And I think this tells you a, a bit about the difference between Britain and the United States in terms of individuals being able to sue. That case went all the way to the House of Lords and was thrown out under a technicality. Ugh. Basically, the House of Lords said, this is covered by the Warsaw Convention, which covers every passenger ticket, and so you can't sue. So these people got nothing. You know, some people I remember telling me, I said, what did you get from British Airways? And some of them got a letter of apology and a check for 500 pounds to cover their lost baggage. Have you ever felt any twinge of concern about your safety because of this deep reporting that is, it really gets to the heart of what we fear is we are in a nefarious government. And I think that your story really gets to the heart of that. Yes, I have. Indeed, only in August just gone when I went over for the press conference and the day before the press conference, I had lunch with my MI6 source. My wife, Penny, said to me, not jokingly, in London, don't stand too close to the edge of the platform in the London underground. Yeah, no kidding. Over the years, I've been harassed. I've been deliberately sent disinformation to throw me off the track. I got sent some documents which were reported to be actual documents confirming the secret mission. I mean, the kind of stuff you never see as a journalist. And they looked very real. And I showed them to a British Special Forces guy and he said, yes, they're real. And it turned out, I nearly published them. It turned out that one of the dates at the end, which I only noticed at the last minute, was wrong. Hmm. And so I teach disinformation and misinformation here at university. This was a classic one where they sent the stuff in the hope that I would publish it and then I would be completely discredited. That was the goal. I'd been attacked in the House of Commons. My sources told me my emails were being read. My phone was bugged. I'm a bit used to this because I've done other stories about spies and special forces. 
Hmm. other stories about MI6 agents. But yeah, it can be intimidating. Also legal threats. Oh, yeah. In about the last 10 or 13 years, I've been pursuing this alone. Other journalists just gave up on the story a long time ago. And I've been doing it in my own time. And yeah, you can sometimes think, am I really going to get there? Am I really going to get a book published? But you know what made it worthwhile? After the press conference, we had all the human shields, a lot of them gathered at the press conference, a lot of my interviewees. And at the end of it, there was a lot of media there. I had this moment where I looked at the human shields and I thought to myself, have I raised their expectations beyond what can be achieved? They all now think they're going to get an apology, a resolution. And I actually went somewhere and sat by myself for two minutes and I felt, I don't know, a little shaky. And I thought, maybe I've done the wrong thing here. And then I went up and all of the human shields were there and they came over and they hugged me and they greeted me and we all cried. And then I thought, okay, this is all right now. And even though many of them have suffered by the act of being interviewed, by the act of having to remember things, it's fair to say that all of them remain completely supportive of the reporting and the idea that I'm helping them get to the truth. I'm sure in some way, any apology they received from anybody, British Airways or the British government, American government, would seem hollow. And the real benefit for them is that because of you, somebody hears their story. It happened. It's real. It's not gaslighting. That happened 30 years ago. So that's an incredible gift you've given them, Stephen. Yes, I think one of the things for them, like that, they've given up hopes. Mm. I mean, the British government is never going to own up to us, never going to apologize. And the American government, which helped in the cover-up, is never going to do so. So most people know now, if you were a human shield of the first Gulf War, you suffered terribly. And that's good for them. That's good for them to have that knowledge. On the next episode of Wicked Words, Carol Robertson on Lizzie Borden, who took an axe. There's so much about Lizzie Borden, her church work, her otherwise kind of banal existence, that just seems so inconsistent with the kind of murderous violence. She's someone who is sitting there in the courtroom every day, perfectly turned out. She has a little special curl she works on. A hair curl, is that what it is? Uh Uh-huh. And you just think, can you really picture her taking a hatchet? My new book, All That Is Wicked, is available for pre-order now, including the audiobook. All That Is Wicked is based on our first season of Tenfold More Wicked. You might think you know the whole story of killer Edward Ruloff's crimes, but there's so much more. My book, American Sherlock, is also available. This has been an exactly right Tenfold More Media production. The producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our mixer is Ryo Baum. Our sound designer is Andrew Epen. Curtis Heath is our composer. Nick Toga did the artwork. Ilsa Brink designed the website. The executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, especially if it happened in your family, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words.
Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.